0: Good morning, Church. I'm truly glad to be here this morning, and uh, I thank uh, Pastor Pete uh, for inviting me to share my testimony. And I thank my colleague who spoke a short while ago, uh, Kara, for a wonderful and uh, inspiring testimony, especially coming from a a young person like her. Uh, My name is Torjene Rudasingwa. I come from the country of Rwanda. Rwanda is one of the 54 countries of Africa. I'm just reminding you that Africa is not a country. (laughs) Um, And it's a a country, a small country, the size of the state of Maryland. Uh, It's a country that has three ethnic groups. Uh, I'm sure you see that in in books and stories, the Hutus, Tootsies and Twas. The third group is rarely mentioned, but yes, there's a third group. And we 12 12 million people who were colonized by the Germans, uh, then the Belgians, and we formally got independence from Belgium in 1962. And so that's where my story begins. Uh, My story begins 55 years ago in that small country uh, at a time of turbulence and turmoil uh, in which I lost my father when I was barely one year old. And thus began a journey that would ultimately take my family, my mother, and uh, three my other siblings to live as refugees in Burundi, in Tanzania, in Kenya, but finally living for most of my childhood and early adulthood in the country of Uganda in a refugee camp. Now, uh, Just for the purposes of giving uh, a testimony of 55 years in 12 minutes, let me just divide it into three phases. The first phase, of course, I'm growing up as a young kid, a young boy, doing what all the naughty young boys do. And I then finally go to, uh, which is the second phase when I go to college, and in college, of course, that's where we meet all these uh, wonderful ideas, very deep and very profound ideas. And then, having grown up in our household as a, a young man, I grew up in a Catholic household. My mother was and still is a staunch Catholic, so we learned how to pray, how to say our father many times, and how to say her Mary" many times, and... In college, because these ideas are very profound, they also have the capability to disrupt. So I turned against God when I was in college, and I really spent uh, my late teenage and adulthood life literally rebelling against God, trying to prove that God does not exist. Uh, And to me, there was enough evidence, especially when I went to medical school, and uh, trained as a physician. And uh, with a lot of science, we tend to believe that that is uh, substantive and enough evidence to prove that God does not exist. In fact, I was so godless that one time, uh, which hurt my mother very much, because my mother is uh, was a staunch Catholic, I tried to prove to her that God does not exist by inviting God to strike me with lightning to prove that he exists. Of course, my mother looked at me and says, you simply don't understand. And at that time, I was in college, and I thought uh, I knew much more than my mother. My mother was a very entrepreneurial African woman, like most African, or like most women, who knew how to survive in very harsh circumstances of life in a refugee camp. Uh, So he said you simply don't understand. So even when I was a medical student and I thought I knew everything, she believed that I was simply being nonsensical. Uh, And so that is the time in phase three I grew up into uh, the revolutionary upheavals of Rwanda. For most of you who know uh, something about Rwanda, you know that in 1994, Uh, There was a genocide in my country that claimed close to one million people and set in motion human suffering that uh, probably uh, anybody has uh, ever, ever experienced, uh, especially on the African continent, but anywhere in the world, apart from the Jewish Holocaust uh, in in Germany. But it's at this time that uh, while there was all this trouble that also rose uh, to power, uh, to become a leader of a political party that fought and won uh, against the, uh, the forces that were committing genocide. And then I became ambassador of my country here in the United States. I was rubbing shoulders the powers that existed here, Clinton and company. And, uh, and so I, I indeed became very powerful. And when I went back in 2000, I became uh, the chief of staff of the current president of Rwanda, once again, being a gatekeeper to the most powerful person in the, in this tiny country uh, at that time. But it is at this time of feeling that you've risen to the top that uh, things begin to happen. Because right now, when I look back, across this period of 55 years, that... Uh, I have lived on on this planet. I've been many things, as I said, I was an orphan. I was orphaned when I was a baby. I have grown up in refugee camps. I've been uh, an atheist. I've been a physician. I've been a soldier, yes, I've carried guns in this uh, uh, revolutionary upheaval in Rwanda. I have, uh, of course, I'm a parent (laughs) and I'm a husband. Uh, so, I have assumed multiple identities, but across this lifespan i 've seen so much human suffering i 've seen uh, so much death that you would question yourself, "Why should you in fact care about the world?" I should be an angry man uh, as I was much earlier in my life, but is at the height of power that something very unique happened to me, and that's what uh, really the essence of my my testimony, because my testimony of 55 years is long. As I told the earlier uh, service, uh, uh, I've compiled it in a book uh, of more than 500 pages, Healing a Nation, where I reflect on all these issues. But there are four things that come to my mind which I want to share with you, The first one being that God indeed works in very mysterious ways. And God is very patient. Long term, for each one of us, God has a long term project. And the the long term for God is eternity. But for us, of course, our lifespan is barely eight years old if we live long enough. And often he speaks to us in whispers, rather than in very dramatic stories like we read in the Bible, the burning bush, the miracles that Jesus Christ performed. No, you can see that for this young man, Teojen, living across that lifespan, it's only when I, uh, I'm in my 40s that God knocks on my conscience, knocks on my heart, and invites me to come to Christ. But, You've got to get tuned to be able to register these whispers uh, through which God speaks to us. So that's one. Two, believing coming to Christ is actually a very profound and a very disruptive and dangerous proposition. If you thought that you could come to Christ and live an ordinary life, you're probably mistaken because it's nothing except ordinary. And I've, uh, because coming to Christ uh, calls you to sp- say things and do things that many other people, your former comrades, in my case, former politicians, former Marxists, because I was a Marxist, uh, the people in the scientific community would call foolish. Indeed, these things to them would sound foolish. But for us believers, we've been told and we've been taught and we believe that this actually is the wisdom. This is the ultimate wisdom. And so, while it is very disruptive, I think we are comforted that we believe in one who is the giver of the ultimate wisdom and we shouldn't be ashamed about it. Three, is that for most of our life on this planet, we've got to be comfortable to know that we actually live like refugees. For me, out of the 55 years, 50 of them have lived as a refugee. As I've told you, I've lived in many African countries, and lately, at my age, I live as a refugee in, here in the United States. Now, United States may not be described as a country of, of refugees, but it's certainly a country of immigrants. It was built by largely by immigrants. And so the idea of being uprooted from home, going to a distant land, learning how to survive. Look, you know, it's a skill in itself, and it's a very humbling skill because you've got to figure out how to survive. But most importantly, what is unique about living as a refugee, as a Christian, is that it invites you to reconcile two propositions which in the beginning may actually sound antagonistic because on the one hand, you've got to become part of the world where you go. You've got to figure out how to survive. Like in my case, my mother learned how to survive in Kenya, in Uganda, in Tanzania, in, in Burundi. And now I've got to figure out how to survive here in the United States. I remember coming to living in the, uh, in the Bay Area in 2005 when we came here in California. And my daughter and my son, who are then, uh, I think, four and six, we went to Safeway, and I think they, have never, they had never seen enough candy, as much candy in a place like they saw so that day. But the children believed that actually it was for theirs to pick, and they picked all the candy, and they were trying to get out of the, out of the, out of the store. Of course, we stopped them and told them that we've got to pay for it. So there's much plenty. Uh, in, in a country like this one. So you've got to adjust because as a refugee, you, and for me I've lived through scanty uh, uh, resources, I've lived in For in when I rose to, to the top, but the point is the two antagonistic things are can you become of the place while at the same time thinking that this is not your home, that at the end of the day, the longing, the deep longing, the deep passion the deep hope in periods of uncertainty is that one day you'll go back home. For us Christians, like the song, This World is Not Our Home, we know that home is not here. Home is what Jesus has promised us. Home is what Jesus died for. And our longing is that at some time, each one of us will have to go home. And so that, as a refugee, if you live as a refugee of figuring out to be in this world, but recognizing that home is not here is an important lesson that I believe that God has tried to teach me in these last uh, couple of decades. And finally, the idea of how to behave and what to do and how to think when we know that we have a caring father. Every time here in church, in every service, And across the ages for the last 2,000 years, we've sung, we've prayed, Our Father who is in heaven. In some instances, it sounds like a routine kind of prayer, but that's very important. Way back, I never mentioned this uh, at the beginning of my life, when my father, an African woman who had never been to school, finds herself in a refugee camp, the question becomes how does she survive? she tries and many people of my age have have died in the course of time and i almost died many many times and then my mother decides actually to commit suicide and kill in the process the three of our children and then she says this is her story she says at some point a very dramatic uh, sound it was a rainy morning almost raining it was cloudy and she said there was thunderstorm there was uh, lightning and then she has she hears a voice that tells her no 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 don't do that i be your father to your children they'll grow up so she decided to return home his her mission was abortive but I'm um, testimony. I think the fact that I'm alive today and testifying to you is testimony to that powerful voice that spoke to her, assuring her that God is our Father. And many times as I was growing up, I used to ask her, But who is my daddy? Who is my father? Because I could see other kids had their father, and I didn't have one. So I often wondered, Why don't I have a father? And oh, Every time I asked my mother, she always answered, God is your father. And so for each one of us this morning, we know that we have a caring father. Even when I was a prodigal son, and I remain in many instances, even when we've been called to Jesus, still we are a sinful people. Still, we have an inclination to become prodigal daughters and prodigal sons. But God does not give up, keeps on inviting us, saying, come home. And that is the amazing grace that God has demonstrated over the ages. Because in each of these occasions, God demonstrates that he has love for us, that there is hope for each one of us, even when we have turmoil and storms in our lives. Storms in our lives. And yet, we know that if we keep the faith and we call him our Father, he will invite us to his eternal home. So that is the ground for the hope that we have. And I believe the most important thing, as uh, Apostle Paul wrote in a very powerful way, of all these things that we talk about, the faith, the hope, the most important thing is Love, and that is part of the ministry that I do these days for the last five years. Uh, in California, first I was like Jonah, God knocking on my door, said, but you've got to go to your people and talk about this tough message of truth-telling and healing. And for five years, I decided to neglect it until, of course, it became too powerful five years ago. And these days, I, I try to go to my countrymen, Rwandans, Uh, and to a certain extent, Africans, my fellow Africans, and I have a message that says, yes, we're broken people and we've inflicted heavy damage on each one of us, on each other. And the only path to heal is to share the truth amongst ourselves, to build the bridges amongst ourselves. And for those because I also want sometimes to be politically correct, especially here in the United States, where in some quarters it's not popular to profess your faith. But I want to mention that for most people, for me, uh, we can only witness true healing if we bear the truth, and the truth is about our salvation. Thank you.